Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. This is a pretty different episode of Climate Scientists. I normally talk to somebody whose work intersects with climate in some way. I talk to them about their research life, and I talk to them about their pathway into science and the kind of projects that they're involved with. And today, I am speaking with somebody who's a scientist whose research overlaps with climate, as I always discuss in the intro here. But we found ourselves discussing a very different topic that is a very different topic than what we might normally talk about on the show. So here's where I humbly ask for your patience and your understanding. Uh, my guest and I, Lauren Bierman, Dr. Lauren Bierman, we are not pretending to be experts in this area. We are not pretending to have wonderful solutions. But we did think that it was important to have the conversation that we had. We thought that it was important to try to normalize this kind of conversation in our own tiny way. We're not pretending like this is some big splash or something. We're, we're just trying to do our own little tiny bit to normalize these kinds of conversations. And I will admit I'm outside of my comfort zone. I'm outside of the range of things that I normally feel kind of safe and okay talking about. But I think that's fine. I think I can deal with being uncomfortable. I can deal with being in a kind of vulnerable position where I might say the wrong thing. I hope I don't. I hope I didn't. But either way, it's, uh, it's, it's scary. And that's okay. That's fine. Of course, you have no doubt guessed by now that what we talked about is racism. We talked about racism and privilege and systems of oppression that have been in place for many centuries. And we did this because we both think that it's important that white people need to talk to each other about racism. The burden of addressing this issue, the burden of looking at it uh, square in the eye and doing something, taking action to be actively anti-racist, that job should not just fall to minority communities. Those of us with the level of privilege that we have, it's our responsibility to use that privilege to point out injustice and to point out systematic oppression where it exists. I also think it's important for me to mention that there is a need to amplify black voices as well, to amplify those messages. Both need to happen, right? We need to, white people need to talk to each other about racism, and we need to amplify those voices that um, need to be amplified. So I thought what I could do is I could read a little bit from this race and racism in the geosciences paper that came out in Nature Geoscience. The uh, article is by, I apologize, I'm probably going to get this name wrong, so please let me apologize up front for that. Uh, the author's name is uh, Koheli Dutt, D-U-T-T. And it's a really, it's a short article. It's really worth reading. And what I'll do is I'll just skip to the last section on individual responsibility. This section was really helpful for me as a white geoscientist with privilege to try to picture some specific things that I could do to help to actively be anti-racist. I'll just read you this paragraph. 
On a personal level, there are three things that white geoscientists can do immediately. First, they should separate their privilege as a white person from their identity as a good person. Conflating the two leads to feelings of anger, denial, and defensiveness, because racism tends to be viewed as a character defect rather than the system of advantage and social conditioning that it really is. Second, to see these issues more clearly, white people need to better understand the perspectives of people of color by, for example, reading about them. Or, I'm adding this myself, uh, listening to podcasts. Specifically, I got a lot out of the 1619 podcast lately. It's really, really well done, really high quality, and uh, I, I can highly recommend that. Let's see. These topics are uncomfortable. Yes, I'm now experiencing that discomfort, and that's fine. I'm okay with that, and often evoke strong reactions, but avoiding them will only worsen the problem. Those in positions of privilege, pointing at myself, should regularly ask themselves what they are doing to combat racism and promote inclusion as a simple but effective reality check. Third, white people need to engage in discussions about race with other white people to move the dial from personal awareness to addressing the dominant culture, ideally in campus-wide dialogues. It is important to avoid putting minorities on the spot. Just as there is no single white opinion on race, there is no single black or Latinx or Asian opinion. Right, so yes, I highly recommend that article, Race and Racism in the Geosciences, Koheli Dutt. But to turn my attention a little bit to the guest... So my guest, I mentioned a minute ago, Dr. Lauren Bierman, uh, Earth Observation Scientist. She works at Plymouth Marine Laboratory. And uh, we actually spoke, and we discussed it on this episode. We spoke a couple of weeks ago. Tried to record uh, when she was outdoors on a particular crow rescue mission. She saw a crow that was in trouble and decided to take some action and to try to save that crow. We talk about that a little bit. She tells the crow rescue story. So we, in that conversation, which we were having with her on the phone and me on my laptop here in my office, which is currently kind of a hot place to be, uh, as in temperature-wise, we uh, talked about her paper that came out in Scientific Reports, Finding Plastic Patches in Coastal Waters Using Optical Satellite Data. And uh, that article... Well, the title describes it pretty well, using satellite data to detect plastic from space. That's the article that we discussed uh, last time when I tried to record this, but the audio ended up being really bad. There was a lot of wind, so really you would not have been able to really hear her that well. The audio quality was, was bad. I couldn't salvage that episode. So we decided to reschedule and try again. But in between that first recording session and this second attempt, this uh, the world changed. A lot changed in a big way. And while I don't normally worry about how topical or not this show is, it felt like we really needed to talk about racism. It felt like in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the protests erupting all over America and all over the world, and this kind of apparently new level of awareness or a renewed level of awareness of these uh, systems of racist oppression that exist and have existed for a long time. It felt like, okay, we really, we have to talk about this. 
It's not right to just uh, pretend like something else is going on. So Lauren and I discussed uh, before recording this episode, we talked about it over Messenger, and we both agreed that, yep, let's do it. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about racism. Let's talk about, let's have two white people talking to each other about race. And yes, of course, I think these conversations are good and helpful. It's also important to point out that they're not enough. We need to take action. We need to do something. We need to have specific policies in place. And Lauren and I can't pretend, we don't pretend to have the answers to that. But it's uh, this is an, an okay, I hope you find that it's an okay starting place. There's a lot, uh, this is a long intro because there's a lot of context here. So give me a few more minutes. I've got to give you a little bit more context for it. Um, later on in the conversation, I tell this story about how I tagged along with my dad to an electrical engineering uh, job site. And I tell the story. So I grew up in the Southeast U.S., just to frame that in context. And uh, uh, growing up, I did encounter, I did hear a lot of older white people and eventually younger white people once I grew into that age range uh, say racist things regularly. It's It exists down there. Of course, there are lots of kind people, of course, there are lots of people who mean well, but it's undeniable. The racism is alive down there, and it does active harm to people who are living down there, minorities who are living down there. It's an actively harmful mindset. Anyway, so I tell this story about how I'm... It's not really a story. It's kind of a nothing story. I'm standing around. Um, I don't even think my dad was there. I think my dad was off talking to somebody else. And this group of old white men just started saying really racist stuff about some of the other people. And this was in Savannah, Georgia, uh, about some of the black communities there. And what I uh, should have done, I should have spoken up. I was still pretty young and I still didn't really have my own kind of sense of my own power. I'd like to think that if I was given that same opportunity, that I would find the courage to step up and say something and to push back against that kind of racist thought and say that's not right to challenge those ideas. But anyway, I felt like it was important for me. Really wanted to be fair to my to my dad there because he didn't say anything racist. I don't even think he was standing around with the people that I ended up listening to. Um, it's just uh, when I tell the story later on, that's a caveat that I didn't put in there in the moment, and I felt like it was important for me to put that in here. So yes, Lauren and I, to turn back to the episode, we talked about her crow rescue, then we talked a lot about racism and privilege. That's pretty much the the only thing we talked about. It was a the dominant conversation topic, and that's, that's uh, great. I'm honestly, yeah, it's way outside of my comfort zone, and I am a little bit nervous to put it out in the world. I mean, I I stand behind what we said, but I'm also willing to, as Lauren and I mentioned many times in the episode, if uh, her and I messed up somewhere, if we need to rethink something, if we need to reframe something, we are very open to learning about that. And I'm not putting that responsibility on anyone. I'm not expecting anybody to, you know, come inform me. But if you are so inclined and you want to give me a different perspective, or you want to give Lauren a different perspective, as we mentioned in the episode, please feel free. We're both, we both want to learn. We both want to ingest new information. We're both scientists. We're both uh, 
you know, anybody can do this, of course, but as a scientist, you get used to uh, losing your old systems of thought. You get used to uh, forgetting about old ways of thinking about things, or at least trying to dismantle old ways of thinking about things in the light of new data, in the light of new information. So please do feel free to bring that to us. Any corrections or things that we need to think about differently or reframe, maybe things we didn't mention. We're coming to you very from a very humble place. We had some connection trouble, so we did have to switch off the video at some point, which meant that we couldn't read each other's body language very well or at all. <laughs> uh, and I did have to cut out some sections of the conversation because the audio quality was not very good. Um, we didn't, we didn't lose anything super substantial, but we did some, uh, I did some mild editing. So if you hear things jump around a bit, that's what's going on. By the way, I don't think our institutes would have any issue with anything we're saying, but I just thought it's important for this uh, very personal episode just to flag up that uh, Lauren and I are speaking as ourselves. We're not speaking as representatives for any organization. It's just us two. Okay, I think that's everything I needed to say. You can find Lauren at Lauren Bierman on Twitter. I am at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter. That's a place you can reach out to both of us or either of us. So here we go. Here is my attempt with Dr. Lauren Bierman to navigate the difficult waters of race and racism. And thank you so much to Dr. Bierman, to Lauren, for taking the time to talk with me and also for being so open and so vulnerable. I'm very, very glad to call you a friend. Thank you so much. Okay, here we go. Hi, Dan. You all right? So you, you're back. You had some back issue. Yeah, I overdid it a little bit. Uh, we've been hiking, you know, the, you know, we've been running with the dogs sort of twice a week. And um, this week we went up to Dartmoor and um, on a Tuesday when Tom wasn't, wasn't working and uh, went for a gorgeous sort of six kilometer hike. Um, hardly saw anyone. It was lovely. Loads of lambs and sort of foals about and loads of birds. Um, but I did something as we were scrambling down one of the tours and yeah, having it take much sometimes. Mm. I'm when old you... now. It's one of those things, right? You hit 40 and it's like your knees and your back just decide to be like, actually, we're not, we're not what we used to be. And you're just going to have to be cool. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my left knee. I can already tell that's going to be a problem for old Dan. It's, um, it's kind of a nuisance now, but like, yeah, yeah, down the road, old Dan is going to have to deal with that. You <laughs> like know, you know, that song sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann, that was like a hit, like more than a decade ago. Maybe I don't. Oh, it's amazing. So basically he, he's just talking over some sort of nice background music. He's one of my favorite directors. I love him anyway. Um, but he says, um, you know, it's sort of advice in the background. And he says, but the one thing I'm sure of is that you should wear sunscreen. Um, uh, but the background advice, you know, listening to it when I first heard it sort of in my twenties or thirties, um, I, I've always loved it, but hearing it again now is quite a different thing because I'm picking up stuff that I sort of ignored when I was younger. And one of the hmm. things he said is when you're young, be kind to your knees because you'll miss them when you're, when they're gone. And I was like, Oh, I get that part now. 
<laughs> that resonates. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Every now and then my knees do this thing where at least one of them decides that it's just going to stop working for a minute. And it's obviously not like my my knee bone that I'm talking about, you know, it's everything around it, all the muscles and things. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like I kind of dip down briefly, like I kind of droop, <laughs> like I kind of, I don't fall, but I like, you know, my knee buckles a little bit. Yeah, and I have yeah, to just yeah. kind of recover. Oh, so yeah. it, it, it looks really awkward. It looks like I'm trying to do some kind of horrible uh, rendition of a dance move or something. But well, I was about no. to say, maybe it's your like signature ballet move. Uh. I it. <laughs> yeah, I could turn it into that. I think so. It's the only dance move I do. And it's, um, that's, uh, no, I need to take care of it though. I need to like be more mindful about what the heck am I doing to my knees? Cause I I think I might torque them a little bit. I think I might like when I twist or like even just kind of moving throughout the day, I think I'm like torquing them too much. And I wonder like a few decades of that is maybe catching up with me. Yeah. I, I have a friend, Harriet. She's very wise. She, she doles up very good information that I tend to disregard at least 90% of the time. Um, but one of the things that she has said is, you know, at this stage of your life, you can't afford to just like you could in your twenties, assume that you can use your body however you want to, and that it's going to bounce back to how it was the next day. Like, you have to work at it. You have to do the exercises. You've got to do the strength training. And I agree with her, but I, I don't take her advice. You know, I, I will just get off the couch and quickly go run a 3K. And like I used to in my 20s, except I was much faster and it used to be a 5K. But yeah, I just, um, it's very good advice and she's definitely right. Um, maybe maybe I'll start to. Is it something you, you think about as you're running? You're like, oh yeah, maybe... Maybe I should have actually done a warm up or uh, or at least stretched or something. But yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to. It can be hard to accept the reality of uh, living in a frail, you know, human. <laughs> but, but that's it. Also, sack like of my, bones and exactly, my body has trained me over the last sort of forty years to get away with murder. It it it's told me like over and over and over again that I can do what I want. <laughs> It's your body's fault. It's blame yeah, it on. Yeah, exactly. It was too much, you know, too much positive <laughs> reinforcements and it enabled me to have this incredibly irresponsible approach to <laughs> ligaments and joints. I, really, I, I love that. Like I'm going to, I take no, no responsibility for this. This is just, <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. My body should have just been designed better if it wanted me to listen to it. Well, and, exactly. like, I want some consistency here, man. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. No, it should. Uh, it needs an upgrade. It needs a from yeah. firmware upgrade. That is true. I could. I could do with a bit of an upgrade. Yeah. So how's the crow doing? So I. The crow I is doing well. Yeah. I'll try to remember to mention in the intro the crow story about yeah. like, and maybe I'll talk. Maybe I'll just mention it here. So like, we were scheduled to talk another time, uh, and that was somewhat um, paused or somewhat not derailed exactly but you know just interrupted slightly a little bit by a crow rescue (laughs) impromptu friday afternoon crow rescue yes and standard stuff for my household i'm gonna be honest yeah Um, do you you want to tell the story well my my partner was walking our dog uh, in the morning and our dog literally stumbled over a fledgling crow that was sort of Uh sheltering on the side of the path and um, my partner took a bit of a look at him and he thought, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't look great. I think maybe there's been a bit of a tussle with a cat. Um, hmm. 
he came over and he said, I, I, I'd like you to take a look at this fledgling and tell me what you think. So we went and took a look and oh, I ummed and odd because he did look a bit disheveled, but he was in a good spot and his parents were nearby and I thought, okay, it's probably better to leave it. And then we came home for lunch and I phoned a rescue organization because I like to check these things. And they said, look, mm. if he's been in a tussle with a cat, he's going to be cat food. Mm. You, mm. If you can just take care of him overnight and release him in the mornings, that's probably the best thing to do. So we went back and then Dan, this is where you called because by then the crow had done a vanishing act mm. and I had, I'd seen the nest. I'd seen that there were still siblings up there, but it was like, it was like seven stories high. I was never going to be able to put anything back in there. And I thought, okay, it's fallen out a bit too soon. It's probably going to need a few days of TLC. Now we just need to find it. So I sat in a graveyard, basically, you know, in the shade of a tree, trying to have this, this meeting with you. And um, right at the end, I found the crow. It sort of hopped up to me. It hopped right up to me where I was sitting. Yeah. Um, and I managed to put him in the cat box and take him home for the weekend. And, you know, took water out from the syringe like like it must have been so dehydrated because it was quite a pathetic thing when, when we brought it home but after 20 minutes after some water and a bit of cat food he perked right up and was back mm. to his feisty self so uh, I think we did the right thing and then by Sunday was perked up enough to start trying to use his wings and make make a racket and was also getting quite tame got tame mm. really quickly and mm. thought it was probably time and we took him back to where we found him and his siblings were out of the nest. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So we released him, put him on a low branch. Um, he started calling. His parents came straight to him. Hmm. Um, they didn't attack us. So maybe they knew that we'd done the right thing. Oh, wow. um, Yeah. And his siblings were around. There were two or three sort of bopping around. And yeah. Now when we walk past, all we see are some happy crows. So he hadn't fallen out uh, super early. Like no, it was at that stage we knew because of the timing in terms of like the time of year and also the fact that um, you can look at certain things. So like his eyes were milky blue mm-hmm. um, instead, of, instead of a dark blue. So we knew that um, it was at about the right stage for them to fledge. Um, but the fact that he was the only fledgling on the ground and, and had clearly spent the night on the ground um, meant that it was probably just a few days too soon. Yeah, well, that's really kind of you, you two, to put that much care, you know, into taking care of a crow and uh, getting it reunited with its family. Like it, that was uh, that's like a worthwhile thing to do. You know, if you've got the time and energy and space and yeah. uh, the, the know-how, like that's important too, right? Like you need to know what to do. Yeah. And I mean, we got some really good advice from this rescue organization, but also what's been fun since then is friends of ours found a, um, a jackdaw fledgling in their garden, um, that had been sort of mauled by the neighborhood cat. And they, they called me and they said, what do we do? And I said, well, this is what we did. Um, and this is the advice we got. And they sort of followed that to the letter. And also within two or three days, the fledgling was looking really strong, testing its wings and they released Hmm. him and, and it was all good. So, yeah, I'm I'm pleased that our um our little endeavour. Though I have to say, it was quite tiring because, of course, you're supposed to feed them every hour. Mm. Um, and so I was waking up at five in the morning to go downstairs and feed them. And just, every hour. Yeah. How does how do the crows? How do the parents do that? Like how, out in the wild? Like how are they finding 
Con- they're just constantly foraging. I mean, this is the yeah. this is the reason why the the timing of of um, these things is so attuned to when prey species or food species are going to be available. So lots of right. insects, lots of flowering things, lots of uh, nuts and seeds in the ground. They're omnivorous. It was quite happy with a high protein di- diet of um, mm. boiled eggs and and cat food and um, some soaked dog food as well. So you know, we we tried to do our best, but you know what it's like. Those the parent birds are just all that they do once their babies are hatched is feed, 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 feed. Could it be a super strong impulse for them? Yeah. yeah a, but you mentioned the timing. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but I know I've seen bits and pieces from people who are more knowledgeable about concerns about climate change. You know, shifting the timing of some of these ecological cycles like Absolutely. when do th- when do things bloom and when do the typical kind of food sources show up and yeah yeah i mean so, it's hugely important and sometimes something happening early is as bad as something happening late hmm. um and because things are changing so rapidly you know if they're changing on a microscopic scale like phytoplankton the changes are super rapid but things like fish and and their larvae and the timings of those things they just can't change quickly enough to keep up so it can have devastating effects from one year to the next yeah and you can imagine that probably you know systems like that can cope with changes on slower time scales Mm -hmm. like over longer you know hundreds many hundreds to thousands of years but we are doing this crazy experiment with a much shorter time scales of change you know we're we're attacking it with this hard forcing by putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And that's got a, a much shorter response time scale uh, exactly. because of the rate at which we're putting that stuff into the atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, that's the common thing, right? People are like, Oh, well, earth is changing all the time. And you go, you know, absolutely. That is completely true. Um, but it changes on time scales that allow everything else to either catch up or, or slowly die out or, or regenerate or come back in a slightly different form. But what we're doing is so rapid, nothing's got a chance to change, hardly anything it's at all. Of, it's kind of like saying like, well, listen, your car it speeds up and slows down all the time. Don't worry about slamming into the brick wall. You know, your <laughs> changes in speed are totally normal. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Hang on. And also, you have no seatbelt and, and no airbag, but good luck. <laughs> You'll <laughs> good, be fine. Good luck. The rate, <laughs> the rate matters. Yeah, yeah the rate exactly. of change matters. The rate is key. Yes. So thank you for rescheduling with me and like agreeing to talk again. Well, thank you for your patience. It's not every day that you have to reschedule because I've decided we have to rescue a crow. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good cause. Uh, And honestly, like we had a a really good conversation that could have easily been an episode. Um, And it just had all this wind noise in it and other kind of noise in it. So like, I felt like people should be able to hear Lauren. I want people to be able to hear what you're saying. And, Fair enough. Yeah, no, I apologize. It was not the most ideal setting. No, that's okay. Yeah, so I think um, I, I do, that was a few weeks ago, and a lot of things have happened kind of in the world generally yeah. since then. It's actually like that feels like a very long time ago. It does. It, it, yeah. You know, th- there's been a revolution in between. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Yeah, I would love to. That would be great. Yeah, because... I'll say what I said to you in the message about like there being different schools of thought out there, but one of them being, and of course maybe I should editorialize a little bit and be real specific about what we're talking about. So we're talking about the uh, Black Lives Matter 
protests that have been happening uh, all over the world, like in lots of different locations. And these have been obviously absolutely massive, uh, gigantic protests. And the that's the kind of, that really wasn't happening the first time we talked. You know, it's, I can't remember the exact timing of it, but it certainly hadn't reached the uh, scale that it's at, that it's been at for about the past week or so. Yeah. So that kind of sets the tone for a lot of things. And it's highlighted like a lot of the conversations that need to be happening right now. Right. Yeah. Um, I did this uh, strike thing, the strike, the STEM strike on Wednesday. Okay. Uh, I don't, did you see that or? No, I didn't. Know? It, it kind of, I, th- I think maybe the message didn't get out quite in, in time. Um, but there was this uh, suggestion to not have any meetings and not do any research this past Wednesday and take a a day out to, uh, you know, read material on racism to kind of learn about like how to be a better ally uh, Mm. to think about and come up with like a plan for like, Oh, here's how I will be anti-racist in the future. Yeah. Because so I'll, I'll try to be, more open about my kind of learning process. I mean, I don't think I had fully appreciated, you know, before the last several weeks that like, uh, no, you, you have to be anti-racist. Like it's not enough to just say like, ah, I'm a, I'm a nice person, right? I, I mean, you know, no, you, this is a force that's out there that's been uh, harming people. Sometimes fatally, it's been harming huge numbers of people for a really long time. And it's actually something that requires active pushback against racism right we yeah. have to do that yeah it's it's interesting like um i've always i've always just thought that that was understood i take a lot for granted right mm. I, I i'm bad at it um i'm i'm not very good at recognizing that people think differently to me sometimes and i was mm-hmm. um in february i saw my brother he lives in canada he and his wife and um we had a reunion sort of tied on to a conference i was attending to the states and uh, I spent a week together and I often take for granted that people have at least considered the things that I think about deeply. Mm. Um, and I was reunited with my brother. He lives in Canada and I'm obviously based in the UK. And um, I went to a conference in San Diego and I used that trip to catch up with him and his wife for, for a week afterwards. And um, she and I were having a conversation and I said in passing, and I, I sort of didn't really intend it to be an indictment or anything, um, I said, yeah, but if you're staying silent about it, then it's tacit acceptance of the status quo. So what you're saying mm. by saying nothing is that you agree. Mm. Um, so you saying nothing is not a disagreement. If anything, it says that, you, that you're agreeing. And she took it on board in a way that I, I wasn't expecting. And she just sort of said, you know, I never thought about it. I don't like to cause drama. Was a mm. very, that's a very sort of, if, um, uh, I guess it's, 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 she's a South African woman as well. And that's kind of inbuilt into our training from a young mm-hmm. age is you don't make a noise, you don't make a fuss and you don't cause drama. Um, and she's really, she seems to really have taken it on board and I've noticed her being incredibly outspoken and proactive. Um, yes, on social media, but for someone like her to be so proactive on social media, it's a huge change. Mm. Um, and I can see that she's like, I am going to cause drama. I'm going to take and make a noise about it and mm. use my privileged white platform to say that I'm not okay with the status quo. And yeah, it's small things like that where you think actually it's, 
it's my duty as an ally to educate other white people because that emotional burden and the burden of training and teaching and sharing of experiences, which is sharing of trauma, really. Mm. Why is that always black people's jobs? That's bullshit. Mm. Sorry, am I allowed to swear on here? I'll try not to, but this is a topic I care about so much. It's going to be hard for me to not swear. It makes (laughs) me really angry. Um, I think it's fine. Yeah. No, but but yeah, it's, it's something that we should talk about more. It's something that we should be uncomfortable about. And yes. um, if, if anything, it's my rage about this that started off the whole thing at Ocean Sciences at that conference I was talking about in San Diego, where people made racist comments about a video I posted. And I got so angry about it that I, that I submitted a second talk so that I could rage in public about how angry racist and xenophobic comments made me um can we back up and put that into context because i don't know if you know the listeners might not know that story necessarily yeah no fair enough so so um last year uh, a journalist came to my work to do a short story on what we've been doing at plymouth marine labs which is using high resolution satellite data to look for patches of floating plastics yes. in the waters. Which I want to talk about later. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. Well, yeah. That, that's, that, that's good, yeah. yeah. And um, he, he posted a video under, uh, or now this posted a video on the work, and um, I'm not, they posted it on Facebook, which, I, which I'm not part of, but my, but my mom is, and she said, oh, you know, it's, I've seen it, it's great, you should go watch it. And I did, and then, of course, I did the thing that you know you're not supposed to do is I checked the comments. And I checked the comments naively i guess because i thought well it's it's satellites it's plastics like this stuff is cool Mm. um what what negative comments could there possibly be maybe a few ad hominem attacks about what i'm wearing or whatever but the last thing i expected was to see a quarter of the comments based in actual racism and xenophobia because the 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 comments were things like why isn't this video in chinese the marine plastic pollution problem is it's a black person problem. It's a brown person problem. Oh. It's, it's because of Asians and Africans. It's because of poor people. It's wow. because of overpopulation in Asia. Um, and one of the comments literally said, um, this is a poor African problem. You can't train savages. Oh my I'm God. Not, I'm like, I'm not even joking. And I was wow. absolutely unprepared for that. Um, and this is the year, the year 2020. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, right well, now. this was the year 2021, but yes. And so going into year 2020, I was a very angry, redheaded scientist. Um, mm-hmm. I was unable to find an outlet for this because it's so unfair and it's also so wrong. It's, it's just, it's based in total misinformation and it, it's based mm-hmm. in this privilege of, I live in the UK I put it in the green bin. Therefore this can't be my problem. Or I live in America America, 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 like, mm-hmm. and, and just like an absolute ignorance of the way the world works. Because yeah. as maybe some people don't know, um, the biggest producers of plastics are Europe and America. Mm-hmm. And America recycles less than 8% of their plastics. Mm-hmm. And Europe as a whole recycle less than 30%. Where does that plastic go? It goes to landfill or the majority of it, what do you think happens to it? It gets shipped to China and Southeast Asia. So we're shipping our problem to developing countries and people are like, oh, yes, 
the plastic pollution problem is like it's a chinese problem it's like no it's our waste and you don't understand the first thing about this but also you're racist and i'm angry like how do Mm. i how do i as a white person use my platform to rage against this Mm -hmm. um and so what i did was i submitted a second talk to agu uh, ocean sciences um where and it was accepted and i spoke about uh, a number of things, but one of them was to use my platform to talk about how this is completely wrong. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was it was for selfish reasons because I needed somewhere to put my anger. But what came out of it was really unexpected, which was after I gave the talk, I was inundated by a crowd of wonderful people who said, "My God, it's really nice to hear a white person." address xenophobia and racism Mm. in a a formal way. And I just thought, oh, I should have been doing this a lot more, a lot sooner. That is a really interesting story. And I I remember you've told me bits and pieces of that before. So you basically submitted this video or you saw the comments, the really racist, awful comments on this video, and you decided to speak up against that specifically. So you did that. And you said where we left off, I think, was... uh, you said you received a lot of support from people saying, oh, it's really nice to hear uh, a privileged white person <laughs> talking about racism and yeah. pointing it out and calling it out. And that kind of hammers in for me this message that I've been absorbing lately over the past couple of weeks that like, no, it's really important for white people to talk to other white people about racism, that that's yeah. actually really important. Yeah. Um, and to not put the burden on people of color to do the uh, labor, like the emotional and intellectual labor that's necessary to be anti-racist. You know, we are perfectly capable of, we can go off and do our own reading. We can go off and listen to podcasts. We can listen to the stories they are already out there. You know, you can, you can find them and you can find good resources to read and absorb. Yeah. Um, That's it. People will spend like six days you know, online investigating exactly which is the best kind of gluten-free bread or <laughs> um, tire for their bike. But when it comes to like re- educating oneself about racism or gender, dis- gender issues, it, it, it's immediately a question rather than I'm going to go and, and lose myself in the literature and find out absolutely everything that I can. And I'm just, I'm curious about this, this lack of engagement or, this unwillingness to self-educate about it because we know what we're like. Like the last time you bought something, I promise you, you compared it to four other things and you spent time um, learning about, about learning about this product and making sure that you were doing the right thing. But it just strikes me as insulting that the same amount of attention, which is basically the minimal, the bar is not that high to just go and educate oneself on something that is, socially so relevant and impactful and it makes me angry again (laughs) that's fine that's okay yeah it's okay to be angry it's fine um there's no no problem with that at all right we gotta have space for anger like where it's warranted and there are there are times when it's warranted absolutely um i think that uh, so one phrase i read a little bit earlier um that i am blanking on who to attribute this to so i apologize is uh, the phrase was something along the lines of like, well, comfort is very seductive. You know, comfort can really draw you in. So mm-hmm. I know that's a big thing that probably keeps people from really engaging with 
uh, racism and engaging with the stories that are out there. It probably keeps people from engaging with a lot of climate change stuff too, because it can be uncomfortable to think about, and it can be uncomfortable to think about one's own role in those systems in those yeah. structures. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was a there was a really good article about race and racism in the geosciences that uh, I'll try to remember to link to this this article when I post the show. But one of the items in that article was to say like, well, first try to separate your sense of being a good person from the fact that, you know, you have at this time where you're living, you are participating in a system that has a lot of racism in it and a lot of um, classism and a lot of unequal distributions. When you think about how things are set up in the world and you know, it's. It, I guess that realization is really hard for people. Uh, but I think the point of that comment in the article about like, we'll try to separate your sense of being mm-hmm. a good person from that reality is like, well, look, you, you know, you you didn't no, you didn't ask for it, you didn't sign up for it, but now you're here and you you know the problem is there and it is actually your responsibility. Like it's our responsibility as people with that privilege who have ended up on a particular side of this imbalance of power you know we we didn't ask for for it to be on this side of the imbalance but we are so we should use that power differential that power gradient to uh, call out racism where we see it and to try to actively be anti-racist and try to uh, enact policies that will combat the long legacy of oppression that's come that's that's associated with um well all of the, the different uh, kind of impositions of power that have been happening over the last several centuries. Yeah. I mean, Dan, I am a hundred percent only sitting here talking with you today because of my privilege. Mm. I am, I'm probably quite an extreme example of it, but like I grew up in South Africa and I attended a really good university, Rhodes university, Cecil John Rhodes, his legacy. Um, horrific, horrific man, even by, by the standards to which he was held in his time. Mm. Um, but it was a really good university. I managed to change degrees from a language-based sort of arts degree to a science degree with no science background because we were wealthy enough to do it because, um, you know, it was quite a niche university. I graduated I've, I've managed sort of every step I've taken in life has been helped by the fact that I'm white a hundred percent. And I, I don't consider myself to be a particularly talented scientist. I think a lot of the reason that I'm here is because of circumstance and the circumstances are in my favor, mainly because I'm white. Mm. And I'm aware of that every day. And I think of the way that I acted as a young girl in South Africa, and I'm horrified by my behavior. I admit that it was out of ignorance, but I don't, I don't like let myself off because of that. If anything, it makes me more motivated to be an ally and to do the hard work now because I'm aware I'm edu- I've educated myself. Circumstances have allowed me to see things in a, in a more clear light. And, and it is that sort of process of going, I can simultaneously be a good person who benefited from the color of my skin. And the mm. question is, what do I do about it now? And my answer has always been to be a better ally. Right. 
it doesn't invalidate the work that you've put into it. Yeah. Um, it's just a fact that's baked. Yeah, it's just a fact that's baked into. Uh, oh yes, I did work hard, and also, <laughs> I benefited from this uh, centuries-long legacy of uh, of suppression. Absolutely, lots of people work really, really hard. Lots of people have far better abilities than I, but circumstances have prevented them from reaching the the, the place that I've reached today. Um, and the difference is mm. very clearly because I'm white. It's a hundred percent true. Yeah. So you mentioned being a better ally and I'm not an expert in that area. I'm trying to learn more uh, about specific things to do. And you mentioned that you had done some of this work in South Africa. I mean, uh, I don't want to frame this under being a better ally, but it's, it's something I'm passionate about, which is outreach and working to, so in the year that I did my master's at the University of Cape Town, 0.03% of the graduates that year within the whole of science were black. Now, bearing in mind that um, white people compose about 10 or 11% of the population in South Africa, mm. um, to have that few pe- black people graduate from postdoctoral study in a university in South Africa, like the number just doesn't compute. I, I remember just going, but that doesn't make any sense. And wow. then I looked around and I went, well, none of my peers are black and I don't have a single black lecturer. So what I did was I, I joined a group called How to Build a Habitable Planet. And what we did was we, um, we ran a, a week-long workshop, um, sort of four times a year, where we would accept applicants from sort of weighted towards previously disadvantaged students. And then we would teach about sort of climate change and geosciences and, and even how to be a better reporter of climate change and climate sciences. And then the idea was then to put people in touch with bursaries that were sufficient, that were equivalent to a first year salary within like a, within Shell or a company that tends to hire students straight out of university so that anyone who wanted to go into postgraduate study could do so with, with good justification. So often um, in South Africa, a young black promising student getting their undergraduate degree will be funded um, through their community. So people will recognize that, that they can succeed and lots of people will put money towards their education um, or there's a bursary involved. Basically, once you have that degree, there's a lot of pressure to pay back the community, to support your parents. I mean, none of us left university or, or left our undergraduate degree going, right, I better earn money straight away because I've got to support my parents. Right. You know, you know I, I, I don't know how that feels. Do you know how that feels, Dan? No, 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 no idea. Exactly. We were like, oh, you know, great, we've, we've got our degree, what next? Um, and it was trying to create the same opportunity where um, if people wanted to stay in, to, in, in study to do a postgraduate degree in the sciences, they, they could because the bursary would be a, a, as good as any sort of um, salary they could get at that, at that level. Mm. Um, and as a result, trying to ensure that we could retain people through postgraduate, retain black students through postgraduate study, um, especially black female students, and ensure that we had a cohort going forward of um, the future black lecturers, the future mm-hmm. black PhD students, 
um, and and hopefully that would you know and th and that program is still going. How to build a habitable planet is now going into into its tenth year, if not if not longer, and it's been incredibly successful. Yeah, got got um, good uh, good results. Absolutely, and it was such a privilege to to work for How to Build a Habitable Planet under Access, and I've taken that forward in that. Um, I've consistently tried to have a role in training and mentorship. And what I do now, so 50% of my work that I do at Plymouth Marine Labs is um, training. So I train, I've, I've taught students in China. I've taught students in Zanzibar. I, I'm looking forward to a training program in Ghana, though I think it will be online this time mm. at the end mm -hmm. of the year, um, trying to ensure that we continue to reach as broadly as possible to teach students from all over the world um, and not just bias that teaching in Europe in traditionally sort of white countries. Yeah, that, that's absolutely agreed. And if um, if there's more you want to say on that, yeah, please please let me know. It's a little bit harder not being able to see you. I think we're just going to have to go without the video for now. But yeah. I can't really do the whole looking at body language thing to tell like <laughs> to get those cues yeah uh, i know i know it's yeah. it's it's difficult this is the one thing about being online is we sort of ape the the face-to-face -face process but yeah we we miss a lot of the the energy that we get off each other right yeah i think i said right. that last time as well but yeah i mean i'm not i'm not saying i'm doing enough because i don't think i am and i'm not saying that my you know my role within the training is is transformative in any way for, for other people um but no, no, but I'm not saying that it is. Um, I could definitely be doing more and I should be doing more. Um, I would like to be someone who has a, has a better, more proactive role in amplifying black, black voices. And I know that I don't do enough. Um, and it is very easy, as you said, to slip back into that comfort of, well, I do something. Mm. Um, but that's not anti-racist, is it? And fighting with people on the internet isn't anti-racist. Uh, I did kick my elderly neighbor out of our house <laughs> when we oh. had housewarming drinks because she used a derogatory term to describe her brown sweater. And I was like, you're not welcome in our home. Um, oh. <laughs> and she did that. It was so awful, Dan. She did this like, she did this thing where she pretended to cry. My partner just started necking the wine. It was so awful. But like, oh, wow. I just, I ref like, you cannot, like, I will not. And we see each other and we're civil to each other, but we're very aware of the fact that we, there is this thing where like if she so much as says the wrong thing i'm i'm not going to be silenced about it i don't care that she's this, that she's this like old lady it's just it's not okay hmm. yeah and that took some courage from you you know that took some that took but it, it seems like you've got like a really strong moral center or like that's that's just kind of clear to me from knowing you a little bit um I'm interested, like, is that something that you've seen evolve over time? Do you, can you track that to anything? Like having this kind of moral, strong moral feeling you know, that did you, are there people in your life that you can say that like, oh, I kind of got, got a bit of that from this person or that person, or maybe had it modeled for me by uh, No, my, my no? family are not woke. They're <laughs> very, they, they, um, they, they grew, you know, we all grew up under apartheid and I was speaking to a colleague about this recently. Like I, um, I grew up under a lot of propaganda about black people. Mm. Um, and I actually did a test today, this morning, yeah. um, about implicit bias. 
to test my level of implicit bias because I feel like mine is really high and I've had to do a lot of training and constant vigilance against falling into those things again. And it's, it's not just about um, race. It's also about gender. South Africa is a really patriarchal country. Um, And I'm pleased to say that apparently I show no, no implicit bias, um, which is extraordinary to me because I feel like I have to be so vigilant against my upbringing. And my upbringing was one where black people were treated differently. Um, my parents like to think they're quite liberal, but our family, our whole family is really quite racist. Mm. Um, when I mean quite racist, I mean, they're just super invested in their racism. <laughs> they believe that black people had it better under apartheid. Oh, wow. Um, Oh yeah. And and like, and the thing is they'll tell it to you with complete sincerity and they feel like sort of this parental responsibility toward black people because you know, you can't possibly treat them like adults with intelligence. It's awful, Dan. So no, um, I don't, I I don't know where to tell you this comes from, I guess. Um, I also saw something on Twitter the other day where it said redheads are the black people of white people. And maybe that's what it is. I know what it's like to be marginalized because I, I look slightly different. And maybe that's where the rage comes from. I don't know. Um, but um, okay. no, yeah. I don't know um, where it comes from, Dan. I think moving to the UK was important for me because um, I don't think I would have fully grown into my understanding of how systemic privileges for hmm. white people in South Africa until I'd taken a step away from it. But now also living in the UK, I see that that's true as well. So it's everywhere. And apparently South Africa, which was a new thing for me, South Africa doesn't own racism. It's <laughs> everywhere. Um, I didn't know that until I left the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know where it comes from. Sorry. Well, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And listen, I don't want to leave you by yourself in this because I want to relate to what you're saying that like, uh, so I grew up in the Southeast US, you know, the deep South, Oh, wow. Out in the middle of nowhere, just rural Georgia. And, you know, there are former plantations all over the place. There's former wow. slave quarters all over the place. You know, it's, it's, that's the place where it was happening. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, cotton fields that, you know, were no doubt, uh, you know, picked by, by slaves. And yeah. there's, uh, there's a, whole, a whole legacy there. And I can tell you, like, without a doubt, even in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, racism, uh, was and still is alive. It's still mm-hmm. awful and it's still alive there. Uh, the expression that it is taking is different than it was, you know, many decades ago, but it's still there, right? People just dress it up in different ways. Yeah. Um, so you sometimes hear, I mean, one of the racist things you hear sometimes is a, I've heard, you know, white people of all ages say this in the this, this Southeast US, uh, they'll say things like, oh, well, as soon as that community over there, as soon as they decide to get their act together, I'll support them. So they will put 100% of the you know, responsibility for making any positive changes on those black communities. They'll just kind of throw their hands up and say like, well, I, that's not my fault. I didn't do that. So um, without realizing that you know, by saying something like that, they are perpetuating a system of inequality and oppression that has been in place, like I said, for many centuries. Yeah, uh, They are just kind of unwilling to see it from that historical perspective. They just kind yeah. of want to pretend like the past didn't happen. But oh God, that dri- doesn't that drive you mad? This whole, like, it's in the past. And you're yeah. like, I mean, like the role that's Brit- that Britain, for example, has had in um, 
you know, in its colonies, uh, coming from a former colony as well. And the fact that it's like not even really taught in schools. And they're like, yeah, but that's in the past. And I'm like, you decimated a continent. Like, what are you talking about? One doesn't bounce back from that. Like, oh, God, it's mad. Oh, it's it a question of time scale we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, right? Like, the time scale matters. There's a long response time scale here. Like, yeah. that, you know, hopefully we are. And I think, you know, uh, positive optimistic people would say that in the states anyway that we are making progress um i mean the past few years forget it they've been the disaster nightmare awful disaster but uh, before 2016 you might say like well we were making some slow progress Mm. uh, over many decades and um this was this was in the obama speech the other week actually and i i you know, whatever you want to say about him, he's uh, he's got a great talent for finding positive things to say in like horrible situations. So I don't know if you heard this, but basically he said like, well, here's one thing to notice about the protests that are happening right now. He said, well, back in the the '60s, and I'm not an expert on this, so I'm just I'm just paraphrasing him. Yeah. Um, so back in the '60s, he said, well, look at the demographics of the people protesting. You know, it was largely it would have been uh, very much. Like mostly black, black folks in those demonstrations. And he said, well, look at these days at the demographics that there's now a much broader kind of coalition. Like it's not mm-hmm. so cleanly divided uh, on like racial lines in terms of who's doing the protesting. Yeah. And so he pointed to that, mm-hmm. you know, even amidst yeah. all this chaos and stuff, he's like, well, that, that looks like some progress. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good point. I, I don't know what to say. Um, again, though, not being a black person and having not sort of walked a mile in those shoes. Yep. I don't know what to say to that, but I hadn't thought of it. Yeah. Hopefully it's a marker of progress. I hope so. But, you know, it's, it's important to not, like you said, it's important to not get comfortable and it's important to push back against uh, racism. And um, I guess another thing that keeps people from really engaging with this topic very much is they're afraid to get it wrong. You know, they're afraid well, to exactly. When, when you messaged me and you were like, you know, we should talk about this. And I was like, I really want to, but like, I'm so afraid of getting it wrong because mm. I don't want to detract from the good conversation. I, I don't want to put my voice. I, I should be, you know, we should be amplifying black voices. Like here yeah. we are two white people having a conversation about right, race. And you know, it is, it's scary because I don't want to say it. I don't want to, I don't want to do the wrong thing. Right. 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 That's, it's an, it's an interesting balance, right? Because like, like we said, it's important for white people to talk to each other about racism. Yeah. Um, and I hope that by me and you having this conversation that we're normalizing that in, in our own little way, you know, yeah. uh, our own little yeah. corner. Um, but the other stuff you said is absolutely true also. Uh, maybe not, but I should just say, and, and the other stuff you said is also true that yeah. like, um, that, you know, that there are voices that need to be, amplified that there are voices that um haven't been heard as much and that is actually one of the kind of positive things about twitter is that some voices that uh, really couldn't be heard that much before that they've been amplified Mm. Um, yeah twitter for all of its for all of its negatives and it has a lot it's got some absolutely golden positives and this is one of them yeah yeah so let me just flag this up by saying like uh we have to be a bit vulnerable here don't we we have to put ourselves in a position of being vulnerable and saying like i'm very happy to say like i'm not an expert in any of this i'm 
I'm gonna probably make mistakes. Uh, I'm happy to to keep learning, and uh, I am also not gonna put all of the burden on on that uh, of that on somebody else, right? I'm gonna take up that burden myself on educating myself. Yeah, um, and yeah, I'm gonna put my hands up as well and say I am happy to get dragged for saying the wrong thing on this and yeah. I, I'm okay with it because I'll learn from it. But again, though, it shouldn't be someone else's responsibility, but yeah, it is, it's scary to talk about it, but again, not talking about it hasn't done us any favors. So. No. So I hope, I hope we did all right. Everybody listening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is like, I know this is like a climate change uh, podcast, but you cannot divorce the two. Like you really can't. And I don't want to talk about yet another white person, but Naomi Klein's book on fire really brought that home for me where I started to understand how the climate change issue isn't a science issue. It's a societal issue and you cannot divorce um, the, the, the race issue and the societal inequality issue. If you want to attack a climate change question or yes, yes. tackle it. And so I think this is the right place as well to talk about it, Dan, you know, the, the two are inexplicably and, and, and completely linked. Mm-hmm. Um, inexplicable. That's the wrong word. What am I trying to say? I guess intrinsically. In, inexorably? Is that the yes, one? Yes, that's the one. Thank you. <laughs> inexorably. Um, and, and you, yeah, definitely not inexplicably. It's very, it's very understandable. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think this is a good place to start to talk about it. And I think you've been very brave and in, in sort of in, in, in getting me to do it. And, you know, it's, it's felt pretty good to share some of the stuff that I obviously don't talk about a lot. Like, I don't like being publicly negative about my family. Uh, we don't have much of a relationship because of their views on race. But, mm. you know, there was there was a part of me who was like, oh, I'm nervous to talk about it. But we should. As you said, you've got to normalize these conversations. Yeah, it's true. And, um, you know, I, I'm, this is our episode. And, you know, we can, we can do what we want with it, like we're constructing it right now. Um, and there'll be some time afterwards, you know, if we want to think about it a little more about what we want to put out. Um, no, so I, I think the, the whole point is that we should feel uncomfortable. We're addressing yeah. something that we should be uncomfortable about. And, and it's good. Like if we keep being comfortable about it, what kind of, what hope do we have at making progress? None at all. Okay. I'll, I'll be, uh, that's, you're in. I'll be uncomfortable with you. That's, <laughs> I'm in as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, like, the truth of the matter is if I, if I think about it and I have been thinking about nothing much else in the last two weeks is what was the last thing I did to amplify black voices? What was the last mm. thing I did to raise up my black colleagues and students? And the truth is absolutely nothing. Mm. I've continued on my way. I focused on my work. I have continued to be part of the status quo and no. It's, no. Uh, we, we should change that. Yeah. We should make an effort to a specific plan like, and, hold ourselves accountable to taking more specific actions to combat racism by amplifying the voices of our like black and other minority colleagues. Yeah. And some of them seem so simple. Like um, I've been reading accounts, you know, putting myself in there, making myself uncomfortable, Uh reading people's accounts of what they experience on a day to day basis in the UK as well. Um, And as simple as a smiling face instead of a scowl mm. when you take a seat like on a busy train or a bus next to a black person. Like I had no idea that that was still a freaking thing. Um, 
Hmm. But, you know, there are lots of little things you can do. I'm just trying to figure out what the big things are. Like, this is one of them, being uncomfortable in a public space to talk Hmm. about this sort of thing. Cool. But, like, I don't know, honestly, cards on the table, like, what I can do. I mean, there's lots of information out there about how to amplify, how to be a better ally, and I'm doing all of that. But in terms of, like, real meaningful what I do on a day-to-day to support and 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 raise up i have to be honest i'm at a bit of a loss well so yeah and i'm i'm not an expert on that either i mean we can retweet things we can that that's very that's very minor but it's very easy to do i guess it's well, that, minor. that's amplifying voices surely yeah, yeah yeah um but like you said maybe the small gestures maybe they mean maybe they're uh, more helpful than we think they are like, yeah. and 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 money where our mouths are right so like there've been a lot of resources out there about who to fund yeah. mainly american but you know um these sorts of things um like legal defense funds exactly and um, um, what are they called bail like the the bail one yeah i've seen um, that one here yeah, yeah i like that one um so money where your mouth is amplifying voices Again, though, that's nothing meaningful. <laughs> well, no, it is. I, I know it means something. Yeah. Um, but I still sit here with my hands empty and I go, what can I do? What well, can I do today? You, you in South Africa, it's really easy. You can be an ally in so many different ways because the bar is so <laughs> low. People, <laughs> why people? Oh, my God, they're so awful. Um, <laughs> but what can I do today? I like, I, you know. In the UK specifically, and this is an interesting problem that i think you and i share that like neither one of us grew up here so the some of the i mean some some of that historical uh the historical cultural context for like living here and we just don't have that as deeply you know kind of in us as we perhaps do the context where we grew up Uh, maybe i'm overgeneralizing but um yeah i feel like like in southeast georgia it would be a little bit more obvious as well of like well let, uh, let let me make the extra efforts when i'm doing like intentional community building to make sure that the network that i'm building is inclusive, inclusive. and yep. that i'm not kind of forgetting to uh reach out to people i think that's one of the things right i like this idea of intentional network building yeah where you I'm guilty of doing a lot of my networking just by I go to conferences, I see who's around, I talk to the people that I know, and they introduce me to their people, and we're all a big friendly group. And to me, it all seems very benign and just happy and friendly, and we all, you know, everybody's great. Um, But to somebody who's maybe in a minority community, if they don't see themselves represented in those groups of people, it, it might not feel as comfortable to get into the mix. They might possibly again happy to be wrong if i'm saying something wrong but they might appreciate like the just a little bit of extra like hey let me introduce you to somebody like hey let me uh hey and and because we would do the same thing wouldn't we like you and i if we knew that there was a newcomer to you know an agu meeting to like a giant science meeting yeah like if somebody reached out to us and said or, or, or actually not not if they reached out to us but if we identified, oh, hey, that's a new person. This is their first meeting and yeah. they, they're not here with anybody else. Yeah, or they're you know, a bit shy or there's a little bit of social anxiety or any any knowledge that we had yeah. about them yeah. that we knew to ourselves, we yeah. would bend over backwards 
to make their experience more positive, right? Yeah, and I'm not trying to pat us on the back, but I think you and I do like doing stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and we kind of do it on instinct a little bit, but uh, we could maybe do it a little more intentionally, a little bit yeah. more like, oh, let me actively seek out and see, you know, if, if there are people kind of on the periphery of the community, uh, whether it's because they are a minority and they don't feel represented in the community or uh, you know, many other different reasons why they, why somebody might feel uh, marginalized, like just that extra effort could be really helpful. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I shared on Twitter, it's, it's kind of a nothing story, so I won't take long. I'll, I'll get through it quickly. Um, so when I moved out to Colorado to start grad school, uh, my partner and I, you know, we didn't know anybody out there. Uh, we, it was just us. And the department, the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State, they were really good about drawing us in. You know, they had welcome barbecues. The professors made sure to introduce us to other people. They introduced us individually to the rest of the department. Oh, that's so nice. It was really important to me, actually, because uh, it had the potential. You know, it's like 1,600 miles away from where I was living before. Uh, no, No contacts out there so it had the potential to be quite an isolating experience but because of that little bit of extra effort that the department put in and it it didn't take that much like okay they put a barbecue together that's like a normal human thing to do you know they introduced us to some people that little bit of extra effort meant so much to me yeah and and maybe uh if that little bit of extra intentional community building that they did if that made such a big difference for me then as a privileged white guy, as I said on Twitter with like fairly run of the mill insecurities, I've got the usual yeah. set of, you know, of a uh, white guy insecurities that, that many people <laughs> in academia have. Yeah. Um, uh, if that made a big difference to me, imagine those small gestures could mean a lot to somebody who feels on the outside of things, who feels marginalized for whatever reason. Yeah. I, I know I'm on a bit of a tear. Thank you for letting no, me just no, no. like, you I, know, I think- I'm thinking about it and I think you're right. It's it's a simple thing to do and it's an important thing to do. Again, though, it's better to be conscious about it because I know I would be conscious about it around someone who I knew something about, you know, personal, like anxiety or shyness or it was their first time at this conference and or they just entered the field. If I knew that, I would consciously make the effort. Mm. And it's the same thing where you go, I have black colleagues who come to these conferences and we don't socialize as much as we could. And maybe it's, maybe it is a case of not feeling welcome and to be more consciously proactive about it. And I, I'm, I'm, I hope I don't sound patronizing there. It's not about that. Hopefully. Um, no, I don't think you, it doesn't sound like it to me. I, I, I don't think it comes across that way. That's not how I'm hearing it. Because like you said earlier, you have some emotional experience with like what it feels like to be a little bit different to what it feels like to maybe feel a little bit on the outside. I know, but I have to Uh, honestly confront the fact that I can be a parental, you know, I like, I mother mm, hen people and mm. that's, that can be, that can come across as incredibly patronizing. Um, And I, I don't want it to, I don't want it to stem from that place. I want it to stem from a different place. Um, Right. 
right. so it's just more me sort of thinking out loud and going careful lauren <laughs> your default <laughs> is to parent everyone it's to it's to gather all of these waifs and strays and look after mm. look after like your clutch but it it, it needs to not come from that place because that is the wrong place to come from for this yes i agree and, and i hope i didn't come across that way oh you didn't but okay. i mean my i just am aware <laughs> of my instincts like that whole like you know the the crow our rescue dog our rescue cat like my my young friends who i sort of you know they lost their mum, and so i'm, I'm i like mm. parent them and it's just like it's good and that and that works for context but in a professional context, do not mother people. That's that's all mm. I that's I'm just reminding myself to not do that. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, there's a nice balance to strike here, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that balance has to be carefully cultivated over time, you know, balanced by your instinct. You have these, you know, and you're doing the work. You're doing the work of like trying to strike the right tone and to strike the right balance. I think it is okay here to throw into the mix that like an important part of self-care, it, it, like that self-care is actually an important part of this, um, that, you know, in order for you to have just this, uh, there's this spoons analogy. Have you heard this? Like, no. so you kind of say like, oh, well, imagine that, you know, we, we only have so many spoons per day. It doesn't really matter what the spoons are. I think they're just supposed to be a way to have a picture in your head okay. of like, you know, uh, the spoons kind of represent like emotional energy and an ability to conduct yourself and like the way that you want to conduct yourself and the kind of energy you want to put out into the world that we only have so many of these. So there are going to be some days where you might not have the, the spoons, the emotional kind of capacity to do the work that's necessary. And I guess when you feel that way, it's important to take care of yourself um, so that, you have to kind of fill up your own reservoir of energy and, and emotion to be able to put that positive emotion and energy back out into the world and be able, and to be able to do the kind of work we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I believe that to an extent, but then there's the extension of that, right? So maybe not in a, a conference sort of situation where it is exhausting. Uh, I'm an introvert. I find, I find those things it takes me weeks to recover from five days of making small talk and networking. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our day to day, like taking a break from reading stories or watching the protests or tapping into that kind of energy, which is um, incredible. It can be quite traumatic. Um, um, my feeling is it's not okay to take breaks from it because the luxury of being able to take a break from it as a white person who's watching other people go through it as opposed to people who never get to take a break from it because they're black and they're in a situation where society is stacked against them. Mm. So yeah, the, there's a balance between how nice that you can take a break um, and realizing that for some people, this is, this is the status quo. This is the day to day and they don't get to take a break. So I feel obliged and, and, committed to not turning away, not taking a day to recover and, and going. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I honestly think that I like could need, could use some help in this particular area because I actually don't know um, the best way to go. Like uh, I've traditionally been quite bad at taking care of myself and, yeah. 
in order to kind of show up for parenting and show up for being a partner and show up for work and show up for all of that. Um, I've had to do a certain amount of self-care yeah. and a certain amount of like, because uh, I don't know, otherwise I can just get into this depressive pit. I can just get into this pit of anxiety and then I'm no good to anybody. Then I'm like yeah. useless. Then yeah, I kind of, then it like doesn't matter how good my intentions are. If I'm just spent, then I'm kind of useless. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I don't know what the answer is. I guess I can only talk about it anecdotally from my experience, which is that, um, yes, it makes me angrier, <laughs> maybe more, more um, incapable of reasoned debate with people who, I don't know if they're worth my time to debate, but, you know, people who... <laughs> who might question me or talk to me and I'm, I'm less able to be on the fence. I have zero chill at the moment. Mm. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just really, I'm like revved to like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think my partner would probably prefer it if I put Twitter down for a little bit and mm. didn't sort of continue to read books that make me cry and I'm sure he'd like to have um, me a little bit more emotionally present in our own relationship. And I mean, I I get it, but also like revolution, man, this is the Mm. time. Like I'm so, I'm so here for that Um, because I just, the, the thing that would make this the saddest thing in the world is if after all of this, nothing changes. Mm. And the way that that happens is because people get tired and they switch off and they turn to something else and suddenly it's cat videos on Instagram again. Um, The pull of comfort, the pull of... Yeah, exactly. As you said, yeah, Yeah. this has been the running theme, right? And so, I mean, my partner can have me back in a while once, you know, society has been torn down and rebuilt (laughs) and once all of the statues have been thrown into canals and, and mm. until that point, like I am going to continue to be angry about this. I am going to continue to kick neighbors out of our house. It's just things need to change now and in a meaningful way. And in order for that to happen, we need to not become complacent. So I, I don't know where that comes down. I don't know where the line is down. I know self-care is important. Yeah. I'm speaking from my experience anecdotally. So yeah. I don't know. All of that makes sense. No, and I, I'm not contradicting anything that you're saying. All that tracks, and I just kind of wonder, is it possible to have kind of multiple rooms in yourself where you keep the different, like, well, here's where I keep my rage yeah. and I will visit this room um, and I will recognize when that room is the one I need to be in. And But there are other times when I can be in the room where I'm like really with my partner or I'm really with my kid or I'm really like... Yeah you know, I'm not distant, like, no, I'm here with you. Like I'm here feeling, experiencing the world with you, having the sensations process. I'm, an, I'm another bit of awareness, you know, that's next to you. Um, maybe it's possible to, to have those different rooms and maybe somebody who has really been in the trenches could teach us something about that. Right. Yeah. Cause like, I, I don't know, I will totally let you speak for yourself. Um, I'm going to speak for myself and saying yeah. that um, I have to admit okay, sure. I voted. I've signed petitions. Um, I, I, I even, I did go to the women's March a while ago with my wife and son, um, Mm. in London. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm saying that to say like, I haven't, 
I haven't really been in the trenches that much. There's part, certainly people who are way, 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 way more like in the trenches, like, you know, out there pushing for change uh, and, and, and marching. So maybe somebody who's really been active in that way politically would have like a, a nice perspective on, oh yeah, here's how I strike. Here's how they strike the balance between keeping that anger someplace and having it ready to go when, when they need to have it, but also not having that be their only dimension, having them be other expressions of themselves. I had, I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine the other day, we were walking in the park and she was saying how she wasn't sure that she was doing enough. Um, she's really introverted. She's a really quiet person. She doesn't really do confrontation really. Um, and I was saying, yeah, but come on, we went to the EU march together. Like, Mm. I know you've got it in you. And she was like, and and I said to her, you know, if you feel like you would do the exact same amount, for example, in this specific case, black people, like uh, social justice, um, as you would do for yourself and yours. So for example, as an EU citizen, she went to the anti-Brexit march because that affected her directly. And I was like, if you would do exactly the same thing for someone else or for another cause, um, and and even if it were for you, there's a part that you cannot step beyond because it's so far, it's not just outside of your comfort zone. It would destroy you. And then, as you said, you'd be no good to anyone. Mm. But as long as you match what you would do for you, for someone else, then I feel like I can't ask more of you. Mm. And maybe mm. that's it. And and to, to question what you said about rage, um, oh, <laughs> I'm going to mm. talk about the Incredible Hulk a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, when he says he's always angry, I feel like that's me. I'm always angry. And it, it, it says a lot about my partner, who's a very centrist person. You know, he's a medical doctor. He's one of those people that as he gives you bad news, you just know that he's, he's, he's with you. Mm. He's one of those incredibly connected, deep, wonderful people. And he just loves me exactly like I am. Mm. Like the angry, like socially motivated, like, yeah. like, angry at Twitter all the time, mm. wants to, well, there's this whole thing where I fantasize about the fact that if I, if I had magical powers, I would turn bad people into trees. Um, <laughs> he totally against that as someone who saves lives, but you know, he still just loves me exactly as I am. And he, he doesn't just tolerate it. He's, he's supportive of it. And I think it's good that I've met someone who understands that my room is always on fire. Mm. <laughs> it's just the default and there's always more fuel that I can add. Um, I guess I just try to limit the amount of fuel I feed it. Um, and he's very good at saying, you need to put your phone down now. Like you're reaching a stage now where you're going to spiral. <laughs> um, and I need that. I do. Um, but I can't switch it off. And I, but that, again, though, that's just me. I'm, yeah. I'm just an angry person. Well, you don't need my approval, um, but I like your anger. <laughs> like it makes sense to me. I get it. I'm like, yeah, there's Lauren. That's that's you. <laughs> oh man, I I know that this has been awesome. This has been an excellent conversation, and it's been very different from any other episode that I've done. And I love that it's been. It's felt to me so kind of natural and organic. I mean, we we were happy to both be in an uncomfortable place and I'm happy with that too. That's fine. Like you said, that's part of what people need to get used to is being, you know, outside of one's comfort zone. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad we've done that. Um, I just, yeah, me too. Me too. It's, it's good to, again though, you know, I talk about putting your money where your mouth is. 
Mm. definitely um been the most uncomfortable and afraid i've been to talk in a while like i'm really scared i've said the wrong thing um but towards your idea of normalizing white people having conversations about race yes um this has to happen and as i said and i I repeat this because i mean it i'm happy to get dragged because i've Mm. done it wrong because Mm. i will learn from it but like we got we gotta start somewhere right yeah absolutely This, this has been deeply weird for me um it shouldn't be, but but here we are, right? Both of us are super involved and we're super active about this, but here we are being really on the back foot and it, it, it has, it's been deeply uncomfortable. And so if it's hard for us, it's going to be really flipping hard for people who who are just coming into this awareness or are waking up to it for the first time because of the protests or yeah. statues are being pulled down, whatever. Um, and we've got to normalize this. Yes. And if this is a first step, even if it's a misstep, but at least in the right direction, I'm, I'm happy to take um, accountability for that. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Um, happy to, I'm, I'm just to echo your sentiment. If people have, again, not putting the responsibility on anybody else, but if people do have feedback that I need to incorporate, I'm very happy to work to do that and to try my best to, um, to, to honestly listen and to empathize, like to try to think about things from another person's perspective and to try to kind of, um, you know, deploy all of my, the, the whatever capacity I have to imagine things from somebody else's perspective, which is inherently, inherently limited, right? Like we have to accept that as much empathizing as we try to do, there is going to be some percentage of the lived experience that is just inaccessible to us. Yeah. We can sort of read about it, think about it, and even kind of have a feeling of like, oh, that sounds awful. Uh, but we don't have the ability to like really live that way. And I'm talking about, you know, people who really are uh, oppressed and who historically have been really oppressed. And um, I mean, you know, I, maybe maybe part of where the whole, um, maybe part of where some of the problem comes from for white people is like, um, I'll just speak for myself. I won't try to generalize too much, but like, I, I know, I know what it feels like to be on the outside of something, to feel a bit weird, to feel a bit like, Oh, I don't really fit in on this. Yeah. Uh, now that could be different from, that is absolutely different from feeling physically threatened. Right. Like yeah. I don't, I don't tend to feel physically threatened. Um, that's a whole different, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Right. Like yeah. I can empathize with the experience of like, Oh, I don't quite, fit into this thing yeah it's whatever the social group it is that we're imagining um, but that's very very different from having to worry about the physical uh, threat part of it as well yeah uh, I, I think it's a good gateway drug into understanding potentially what it can feel like a percentage of right mm-hmm. uh, when i talk about the redheads being the blacks of the whites um we are taunted and teased and bullied in physical and emotional ways at school. Mm. It gives me a, a fraction of the insight and empathy required to understand what it must be like to grow up as a black person in, in modern day society, right? A gateway, a little, little sliver. Like you said, it's, the, it's a tiny sliver. but A tiny sliver, yeah. And nothing. as an adult, it's all vanished. It's just disappeared. Mm. I, I was lucky enough to grow into a tall, skinny pretty ginger and it's it's gone if anything it now works in my favor Hmm. so i got a taste of it 
and then it was turned around. That doesn't happen if you're black. It just becomes mm. compounded, right? Mm. And so it's given me a slight insight into what it must be like on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I would never change that. I'm so great. If that's the, if that's the way that I learned empathy, I will take it a hundred times over. Um, but we cannot possibly, possibly know what it's no. like. No, I, I, I don't get it, and I'm not going to be able to get it. All I can do is try really hard, but it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> well, not even to try, but to, to just acknowledge and to just listen. Mm. And if someone says this is bad, to go, okay, you say so, then, then I've got you. You yes. let me know what to do to help. You, know, to you, you don't believe. have to understand with every cell in your body in order to be a good ally. Yes, that's an important point, right? Yeah, it's more about accepting that what's being told to you and realizing that um you're you even if you can't directly relate to that that you need to accept that people have different experiences in life and uh that it could be very very different from your own yeah to hear that message and then to use your platform or your privilege to help do something about it is is going to be more and more important i think if you continually strive to understand every aspect of it you're looking in the wrong direction yeah that's a good point no and, that, and that's, i don't know if i'm right I, that's an idea um but certainly to 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 hear to listen and to and to be active from your place of privilege um yeah yeah well thank you for going there with me i appreciate it <laughs> i appreciate it a lot really yeah, I hope it turns out okay. Um, yeah, that's all I yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to wrap us up, actually. I know we've been talking for a while. I don't know what your evening looks like. And we didn't get to talk about your, your science work yet. <laughs> but you know what? Like, again, though, the two things are, they're, they're tied together. You know, the, the work that I wanted to talk to you about is about satellites and plastics and about this this problem but at the end of the day the thing that makes me most passionate about my work is the message i want to get out there that plastics are not a developing world problem they're a developed world problem and so would i rather talk about the fact that i can detect them from satellites not really would i would i prefer especially within the context of what's happening in the world to talk about the fact that you can't even talk about satellites and plastics without slam slamming into a wall of racism xenophobia yep that's that's where my passion is that's where i'm more interested in going so that's awesome you've given me the platform to to speak about the things that make me more interested in my science even though they're tangential or should i say overarching and i think more important Um, that's awesome yeah yeah, and we can we can point people to the paper we can link people to the paper and they can see you know the the specific bit of work you've done that we talked about last time, but I'm really glad to hear you say that because that's, that's like kind of a nice thing that you can do with a podcast, right? That you maybe can't do um, with a shorter kind of more focused, Oh, here's a summary of my paper sort of uh, outreach. All that stuff is wonderful, by the way, I'm not slamming those (laughs) outreach efforts at at all. Those are absolutely wonderful things to do. Um, And I'm just so excited to talk to you about this. This has been really like you said, it's been uncomfortable, but I'm getting a real charge out of like trying. And when I say trying, I don't know how that sounded, but I just mean like going there. Yeah. Dan, I I really like what you said and uh, about normalizing this kind of conversation. And 
yeah, I agree. This has been way better than talking about the technical part of my work because the stuff that drives me is this and it underpins everything. You know, I uh, remembered we were talking about, you know, kind of getting out there and like doing the work and being an activist and such. Um, Do you know, I, I keep thinking about this thing that uh, John Lewis, um, you know, the, the activist and, um, and congressperson from, from the States that uh, he participated in, you know, many of the civil rights marches in the sixties, you know, with, with Martin Luther King. And uh, I keep thinking about what a, what a badass he was yeah. because uh, I forget the exact march he was talking about. And I apologize for forgetting, but uh, he, in the story, I don't know why I keep focusing in on this detail that he just said, well, we, we got ready to go and I put an apple in my pocket in case I got hungry and we went out to it. And I keep thinking about, wait, you put an apple, just one apple. <laughs> like that was your food. You didn't know, like he didn't know when he was going to get access to food again. Yeah. He didn't know how, like the march could have been who knows how long, right? Because you, you can't predict what's going to happen with these things. And I just thought that's really impressive because like when, when we went, to a very different kind of march, you know, the the march in London a couple of years ago. Yeah, I had a whole backpack full of stuff. I had you know just like here's my three different here's our three different water bottles and here's yeah. I mean okay we had three and people we got some but sauces and we got some you got some snacks and tons of snacks so much food just like we <laughs> we kind of camped out right and it's kind yeah. of just, um but I, I keep thinking about the the people who have been willing to get in there and really to, to do it and um. I love that. I, I really love that. I'm so glad you brought it up. I don't know why. I'm also feeling it just is so resonating. And yeah, I love that. An apple. I put an apple in my pocket and I got to work. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we covered a lot. And it feels like we're wrapping up, but I also don't want to, like, artificially cut us off if there's more that we want to talk about. How are you feeling? I'm I'm feeling pretty good and also wiped out. Um, yeah, yeah. It was it was quite personal stuff, right? Um, yes. I've obviously not talked about the sum total of my experiences growing up in apartheid South Africa, but you know, it's talking about my family and um, you know that that was some hard stuff. It's it's uh, you normally need to know me for a number of years before that comes mm. out, so <laughs> it was it was difficult sharing that, but. Um, I feel a bit emotionally wiped out and uh, Mm. you imagine, you know, we're talking about tangential experiences within, within race issues, within societal structures. Can you imagine doing this over and over again, especially now black people educating white people or sharing their trauma (sighs) in order to educate? Can you imagine how exhausting that is? No. (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) of, Of insight. Yes, absolutely. Greater, definitely greater appreciation and understanding. And, and I hope I hope that I shared enough of my experience because oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want you to feel like that you're the only one doing that. I want to meet you there. Oh but no, like, you have. Uh, I had no idea when you grew up, like yeah? the idea that there was like literal slave plantations. I mean, South Africa was definitely built on slavery, even if they call it uh, labor. It was, it was definitely black slavery. It was built on black bodies. Um, but yeah. it, you know, like America to me just seems wild. I like I've watched movies about it, but like, the fact that you literally grew up near plantations where, where like slaves were working and her, like 
I didn't know that about you and I've known you for a long time. So, yeah. you know, you've shared. I, I guess I haven't talked about it a ton f- for whatever reason. Um, it is a complicated place to be from, right? Yeah. Uh, because I can't pretend to understand it, but I know a little bit about what that legacy is. And um, so in high school, this was the the late 90s. So I graduated in 2001 from high school. My wife had to remind me about this, by the way. I had forgotten. Okay. Um, so in high school, we still had, like the school still had separate uh, black and white prom kings and prom queens. No way. Yeah, yeah. And they had this and the administration would kind of frame it as like, oh, well, we want to give them a chance. Like that's kind of how they would sell it or like frame it to the, oh, the my students. My parents would have approved. That's oh, part of their thing. Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's complicated. I don't know, you know, this, this, having that sort of structure is so obviously problematic yeah. you know looking at it today in 2020 but like why couldn't people see that if like in the 90s like we kind of thought you know i mean there's been a lot of change i guess even since then um well let's give you a clue like i think south africa made progress and then rapidly slipped backwards because of you think, a lot of stuff but when I graduated from high school, which was 1998, I'm really old. Um, I had a black head boy and a black deputy head girl. Huh. Uh, and you guys had separate prom com- <laughs> like, it, but it, You know what I mean? Like it's mad, right? So it's mad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, though, I know um, South Africa is a majority black population and especially in Johannesburg as well as Zulu dominated black sort of black population. Uh, it would have been very telling if I hadn't had um, a black head girl and head boy. But my point is just that it's wild to me coming from a, a, like a recently out of a party country yeah. that like in, in your generation, you had something like that. It's just wild. Yeah. It's so, so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, part of why I said that racism is still alive down there is that, you know, you can, like I said, you can hear it in the things that old, old white people say. And that yeah. sadly, sadly that, young white people say also um and i I can't remember the specific example but um i I can't remember the specifics of this example but um i was tagging along with um some my 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 dad was doing this electrical engineering sort of thing Mm. Uh, that that's his job he's an electrical engineer and i got to tag along to one of his his work sites and I happened to be standing around with some some older white people. I'm just a, a guest there. I'm just a visitor. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I, I even I don't remember what was said, but the the context of it was very clearly racist. This was in Savannah, Savannah, Georgia. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, Savannah, Georgia, um, does have it's it's got at least uh, when I was kind of around there. Uh, you know, it's it's got some some problems in terms of it's got some serious racism problems. Put it that way. Yeah. And I sort of knew that abstractly, but standing around and listening to some of these old white men and the kind of things they were saying, it was the it was right there. It was just the racism was alive, and oh. you know, and you know, kind of putting putting down you know the black communities and kind of putting down the 
kind of black mayor and kind of like just um or the 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 black kind of leadership in the area and like it really felt patronizing and degrading yeah um and i i was uh i need to be comfortable enough to be uncomfortable enough to say something you know if i'm ever in that kind of position again yeah um i need to be able to say something you know even if i'm just like oh come on that's that's not you know that's not cool what don't watch out don't be racist about it yeah um i need to be willing to make people uncomfortable I mean, be prepared for the backlash. I, you know, I do go through periods with my parents, at least on WhatsApp for a few weeks at a time where we have a relatively stable thing. And then my mom will send out something that's borderline racist and I'll call her on it. And it results in this massive blow up and then we don't speak for a month or two. So Mm. as long as you're prepared for quite an aggressive pushback, Dan, because people know it's wrong and they don't like to be called out on it. Mm. And I would just say, you've got to do it. Of course, you've got to do it. But like, be, don't be naive about what's going to happen in response. Yeah, that's, that's true. Saying. Yeah, be prepared to be uncomfortable, to make people uncomfortable and to deal with the fallout from it. Exactly. So yeah, there's that extra step. Um, like you did with kicking your neighbor out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, the world didn't end we're still neighbors and we're still neighborly. And especially in lockdown, we've, we've been really supportive as much as possible. Um, but yeah, no, not, not happening. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but it was awful at the time and it stabilized, but I'm just saying be prepared for the awfulness at the time. Yeah. Give you any true. advice as someone who, who does this quite routinely to people who should know better. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting more comfortable with the idea the older I get. Yeah. So I don't know well, you if you know just... yourself better, right? So you can mm-hmm. stand up for yourself better. You're not going to get cowed at this stage of your life. You know, you're a dad, you're a husband, you're, you're, you're all of these things. You've got so much power. You've got so, you, you come from a platform of real privilege now and, mm. and that power that comes with it. Um, yeah. As you said, you're not going to be cowed by a bunch of old men anymore. I got to use it. Yeah. I got to use the privilege to yep. hopefully do positive things. Yep. Mm. Yeah, be a better ally. And it is, it's really, it's hard. It's hard to say stuff. And it's not hard for me, but as I said, my, I'm always on fire. My room is always on fire. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I guess in a way, I'm more physically confident because I don't think I'm going to get someone swing at me. But if they did, I've now, you know, I'm, I've got a black belt. <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> But it is like, I will, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, um, I, I lost my fear a long time ago, <laughs> I guess, because I'm always angry. The anger. So you've used the anger to drive you forward. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and I'm such a different person to like the person that I was a decade ago as well, you know, still based in South Africa where I was quiet and again, fulfilling the role, you know, the gender role of being quiet and not confrontational and trying to be the square peg that fitted into that round hole, just trying all the time. And I remember um, I was introduced to um, a friend of a friend. Who, her name is Ilham. She's a, she's an incredible journalist and we went for a beer and she, she was amazing. She's just so forthright. And she was asking me about gender, uh, race issues. And I said, actually, Ilham, like, I don't have the energy to think about that right now because I'm a climate scientist. And, mm. that's a, 
And I remember her face. I think she actually just put her, her head on the table. Oh. And I remember going, oh, I think I said something wrong there. Um, and I've, again, though, that's the fuel to the fire. And, and I, you know, that was, um, it, it was such a small thing. But because she didn't hold back, like, she forced me to think, oh, I'm doing something wrong. Mm. And that was, that, was, that was quite an important step for me. That, that definitely set me off on um, a more self, um, just inward looking, like trying to do some self-reflection about what I'd done wrong to this, to this girl who was kind of in awe of and realizing that what I'd said was the worst possible thing you could say and, and starting from there. Um, and now, and I think that's the last time I've ever been quiet about something. Um, and it was because she wasn't, she didn't hold back. And, and she educated me completely, like transformed my life, sent me on a different track oh. by, by not being quiet. What's, and, your, what's your last name? Uh, Rawut. So R-A-W-O-O-T. She is amazing. You should follow her on Twitter. She's doing incredible work at the moment, um, protecting Mozambique from fossil fuel companies trying to um, expand and exploit and leaving complete destruction in their wake. And Mozambique is so vulnerable to climate change. You know, all of those pictures you've seen of people huddling in trees, that woman who gave birth in a tree, I'm almost 100% sure that was in Mozambique. Um, and she's doing incredible work at the moment um, as an advocate and as a journalist. So if you follow her, uh, if you're going to follow anyone on Twitter, Ilham is a person to follow. She's fantastic. Nice. Good. Yeah. So she, it was like, but I think an important part of that story is that you didn't get defensive. You know, you didn't look for ways to throw up your walls. You didn't kind of internalize it in that way. You know, you said, oh, let me actually use this as a learning opportunity. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. special because I think for a lot of folks, when they have their kind of ego challenged by you know, new information like that or the embarrassment of having made a misstep, I think a lot of people get angry and defensive, which is counterproductive. It's yeah. like an it's like an understandable emotional reaction, but it's not helpful. <laughs> Super not helpful. And, and again, though, if, you know, if we've been really dumb in this podcast and we've said a lot of stuff wrong, and I, again, I'm open to being embarrassed because mm. I use that as a learning experience. And yep. uh, if we could just, yeah, if we could stop being so defensive, really, um, we'd probably learn a lot quicker. That's a good point. You know that you're the first person that's ever, I guess I've never talked about that experience to anyone but you. Um, and obviously Ilham knows about it. Maybe she's forgotten it. But um, you're the first person that's ever made me see it in a slightly more positive light because I think mm. back on it and I, I, I cringe into like a little little cringe pretzel, like this little <laughs> knot of unhappy, embarrassed person. Um, uh. But you're the first person that's gone, well, at least you learned from it. And I guess, yeah, okay, you're right. That That's a positive way of looking at it i i definitely have not wasted that experience certainly tried not to yeah that's good that's positive that's what i'm trying to do to, to relate to you um on a video chat the other day um i accidentally used somebody's wrong pronoun they're a they're a non, non-binary person and it was just the wrong word came out of my mouth and um i I'm trying to just use that as a learning experience. It was really embarrassing. Yeah. All, all I did though, I kind of understand that what you're supposed to do, if you use the wrong pronoun, you apologize, fix it and move on. Don't make it the other person's problem. Okay. You know, don't, don't make it their problem to like help you feel better about your mistake. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, They're not supposed to emotionally soothe you. Right. Yeah. 
Yes. And that's right. I was super embarrassed. I felt bummed out the rest of the night and I did my best to not put that on anybody else. I'm like, that was my bad. That was my mistake. I'm going to internalize. I didn't say this out loud, but I was like, I'm going to try to learn from this instead of like just beating myself up or making it the other person's problem. Um, So I think that's, that's important, right? Like you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I, um, I've thought about that as well. Like, what happens when, not if, when yeah. I misgender someone, and it's going to be the, it's going to be again the the cringe pretzel. I'm I'm just going to internalize that. It's going to be the worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that because now I've got a script to follow in terms of being a more productive ally and not making that my fault, my mistake, mm. their problem. Yes. So thank you for that, Dan. I <laughs> hope it isn't if. I hope I never misgender someone in that way. But it's it's um again though we're fighting against years of um of teaching and training to do things in a particular way that's right and that's that's right um i i really hope um yeah yeah but thank you for sharing that that was (laughs) that was an important share dan i'm grateful for you sharing that i I was just pausing because the audio stretched out a little bit there i don't know how it sounded to other people but um yeah and that I think it's just we have some of these automatic defense mechanisms, you know, getting defensive, getting angry, um, that they might show up, but you don't need to let them to the party. You don't need to let them run the show, right? You can you can give them space inside yourself, um, but you don't need to put them on somebody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I aspire to that. You know, I, I try to not let the anger have the wheel all of the time. I mm. don't get it right. Um I'm trying. If you see me right now, I've got a smile on my face that's very awkward. I'm trying <laughs> and I'm looking like I might be lying, but I am trying. I definitely am trying. I was kind of thinking about that in, that movie Inside Out about the you know, different emotions that have different turns at the console. Yeah. And sometimes anger is the right one to be at the console, right? Yeah. Sometimes that's the one you need. Yeah. It's, you know, it's easier for me to be angry than it is to be as sad as I feel like I could be. Because oh. sadness is endless. It's bottomless. It, I'm just so sad at the way we're destroying our planet. I'm so sad at the way that marginalized communities are treated. I'm so sad at the way black people are still treated like this in this day and age. I'm so sad at the fact that people I used to really like are apparently super anti against trans people. Like, it's it's an it's an absolutely bottomless pit of sadness but it's not going to get me anywhere because when i'm sad i'm immovable i curl into a ball and you're right like that emotion shouldn't have shouldn't have all of the space at the console and and anger at least keeps me moving forward yeah thanks for sharing that that was really personal i appreciate that so much yeah i i watched um i don't know if you've seen it the cove it's a no i haven't seen that one don't watch it I mean, maybe watch it. I don't know. I um, I didn't get out of bed for two weeks after I watched it. I'm, I had two housemates hmm. at the time. I was in Cape Town and um, I'd also just started a master's with a group of people and everyone was just like, okay, so Lauren needs to, Lauren doesn't have filters. We <laughs> hmm. need to be very careful about what she sees because otherwise we're going to lose her for weeks at a time because when sadness is taking the wheel, like, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's no movement. I just have to curl up and hide for, for way too long. Um, so 
So the anger is like you use that to drive yourself forward. You use that to like do stuff. Yeah. Whereas the, so like, you know, I guess sadness, <laughs> sadness, and I'm laughing because I hope it's clear that I'm laughing because I can tell I'm being a little awkward about my attempt to put this together. I'm not laughing for uh, any other reason, but um, that I'm aware of the, <laughs> that uh, the sadness sometimes is about drawing people closer to you, right? About saying like, I need help. I need support. Yeah. Like I feel sad. Come, come to me. Yeah. Um, it's like a reaching out sort of thing. And you're saying for you that that, that just like bottoms out. Do you, feel like does that irregardless of the kind of support system you have yeah. around you yeah regardless because when you tap into it so like the, the video of george floyd's death um it is i never got to the end of it i watched it and i just started mm. crying it's the worst thing but you know for every video about george floyd there's a hundred more right <laughs> That's right. That's just the ones that we have video of, right? Right, exactly. And and all of the ones that we don't know of. And um, there have been cases in South Africa as well. The South African police force is um, tyrannical. I'm, I'm reading some stats about um, the number of people who die in detention in South Africa, and it's um, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and that the 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 not you know the human reaction to that is sadness it's it's a tragedy it's mm-hmm. it's it, i mean where are the words for this that there aren't any it's and this is what i'm talking about this endless sadness but you switch it to anger and i'm there i'm pro, i want to protest i i want to i want to show up with that apple in my pocket and i'm going to be there for days and and you know, so I have to use anger to drive because the sadness is overwhelming because it is the right response to, it's not the right response, but it is the overwhelming response to everything like that. So the, the, the video, I'm not equating the two things. I'm saying that my experience of watching him die and, or, or, I don't really have the words for it because because sadness is in is in the seat right now and and so I'm useless. I'm just mm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm at a loss because with the, the lack of humanity, the lack of care, the lack of soul and heart and everything that makes us or should make us human, it's it's lacking. And you look around and it's lacking in everything. You know, from from Brexit to to Trump to hate on Twitter to to not recognizing um to, to not recognizing women as women because they've because they're transgender the lack of humanity the lack of being able to share a space mm. with someone who's slightly different to you for whatever reason I, like i can't i cannot get to grips with it I don't understand it it's outside of my experience it's outside of my realm of of understanding what it is to be human and either my understanding of human is wrong and it's naive or i can cling to it being right and that and that we can change things if we could only open up people's eyes and that's when the anger takes over and goes right what are we going to do about it how are we going to fix this it's dirt it's dirt you know about um there's this person named mike mcargue he's sometimes called science mike so he has this book out 
I'm not plugging it because I haven't read it yet. Um, I've been listening to him on a couple of podcasts. And so okay. I'm just quoting him when I'm talking about some of this stuff that like, um, and so he has this, the book is called like, um, you are a miracle and a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and part of what he talks about now, I, I'm not going to try to quote the book again, because I've only heard him talk about it on podcasts, but yeah. he talks about priming and how important priming is that like the way we respond to situations um, that we're profoundly influenced by the kind of things we've read and the things we've seen and the, you know, what we have been kind of thinking about just before taking some action. An example that's cited sometimes is, uh, you know, this study where uh, it's, it's one of these psychology studies where they have people do a word scramble and or some kind of word-based game, you know, and uh, if they give the person a bunch of words that have like youth and vitality and and motion and energy in them, yeah. uh, the people will walk faster when they're leaving the training center, when they're leaving the, the room and like going down the hall. Really? So then if you give them a bunch of words that are more like associated with being older and slower and more, you know, and maybe, maybe their knees are bad. Uh, like you know, talking about to connect it to having a frail body, like you were talking yeah. about at the beginning. Um, so it, it's people will, will walk slower. So we, we have lots of evidence like that pointing to the idea that um, we're very susceptible to our environment and we're very susceptible to the things around us. So um, the reason I kind of brought that up was that um, in my you know, in an attempt to like try to understand how could we have so much of this inhumanity, this lack of humanity, and maybe a hypothesis of it is that well, we've it's been primed out of us. It's kind of been conditioned out of us. You know, we're we're born with it. We're born with these big emotions and this ability to empathize and this ability to you know, we don't, we're not born with the ability to see stuff from somebody else's perspective. I'm, I'm not saying that, but um, I'm saying that we, we become kind of more distant from, there's like something really fundamental going on here where we're all alive at the same time. And we're all kind of aware at the same time. We're like, yeah. we're here together. You know, we are having this collective uh, shared experience of tables and planet and skies and planets and trees and things and um, and and I think babies kind of are more in touch with that a little bit like they are just experiencing the world as like wow that's this bundle of sensations yeah um, and then you know I guess often as we get older uh, as certainly in the kind of modern like traditions that we find ourselves a part of are uh, now here, here's where I'm really going to make a fool of myself and just sound ridiculous, but I'll, I'll continue go- going there. <laughs> I'll continue going there and putting this out there. So like, as we get older, our kind of logical brains are put more in the driver's seat uh, for, for various reasons, you know, maybe some of them cultural and our brains love to categorize. They love to create a story. They yeah. love to create an ego and an identity. They love to create an us versus them. They yeah. love to forget they love to forget that we are all the same thing. They love to forget that we are all experiencing one kind of common thing. And maybe that sounds a little, a little mystical or whatnot. It's not really meant to be mystical. It's meant to just be like, yeah, we're, 
we're a collection of atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some atoms. These things near me have atoms. You know, we, um, we're, it, it, we're not like really separate things apart from nature and apart from the things mm-hmm. around us. We're, we're yeah. part of it. We're in there. We're in the, in the mix. And the part of our brain that is susceptible we have these brains that are susceptible to priming and that are susceptible and that are so good at creating us versus them distinctions that the activity of that brain kind of makes you forget that this is all one big swirling mass of molecules. I'm a tornado of molecules. You're a tornado of molecules. And if we were to stay in the same space for long enough, some of our molecules would switch places. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like the, the boundaries between people and things, um, are there but they're not that fundamental really yeah. um, i love the analogy of us being waves crashing on a beach you know we're like made of the we're made of something some kind of water you know in, to use this analogy uh, so if we imagine ourselves as like waves we are composed of something and our whole life is just us as a wave crashing on the beach and then the water from which we are made after we die, returns to the ocean. It returns to the one big thing mm. that we're all kind of coming out of. So, like the separateness of us from everything else is transient. It's not really that fundamental. It's very, very short-lived. Yeah. Um, so maybe we're identifying way too strongly with our separateness and with our identity and with our oh, I'm different. Uh, my skin looks like this. And your skin looks like that. Therefore, I'm a different kind of thing than you are. Yeah. Um, and I'm just as susceptible to that as anybody else, right? I've got a, a brain too that does the same sort of thing. Mm. Um, so I think like, I think kind of the only way we can start to navigate our way out of this is I'm not pretending to have the solutions again when I say that. I'm, I'm just putting out my best understanding at the time, I'm probably wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. It's fine. But um, I think it's got to get back to, we have to like live in our bodies again and like remember that we are, um, we are embodied creatures. We've got to, we have sensations where, you know, we, we can, we have, we're, we're more than just our brains, which our brains are very good at sorting things and classifying things, but we are more, we are not just that. That's not the only thing that we're on i'm sorry i'm giving a long sermon no here, but, but it makes but sense seems to be happening <laughs> no because we, we're now in an unjust society that kind of leverages the heck out of that you know mm, yeah our natural our instinct to classify and and to put things into groups and it's now based in you know in a way like if you're buying into the racism trope you've been manipulated like well done you've bought into into your brain's natural like desire to categorize things and the system that's set up to feed that yes and so if anything you've just bought into it like and it's about stepping away from what society is feeding you again that comfort right it's so comfortable mm-hmm. to categorize stuff and saying no i, I reject that because we're one and the same and we're part of the same ecosystem we're part of the same everything and i want my humanity back Hmm. my humanness and the humanness is all about that connectivity exactly and about about seeing how you're part of everything as opposed to a separate sort of thing yeah yeah absolutely as opposed to going like i'm dan and i like blueberries and 
I like this kind of beer and I'm separate from everything exactly. else around me. That's just silliness. That's just, an, I mean, it's okay. It's fine to like yourself. That's fine. But like on some level, it's kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, I mean, it's the same with science, right? They say, if you like your idea a little too much, like you're in a danger zone. Hmm. Like, you know, your theories and your ideas within science, they're supposed to be completely neutral and, and interchangeable when new information comes along. Hmm. Um, and as humans, I think we need to step away from the Kool-Aid that says, you know, that comforting feeling of you are better because you're white. Hmm. You are better because you're wealthy. You're, you're not. Like, you're really not. Um, we're part of the same ecosystem. We're part of the same tribe. And we exist within a natural system that we need to maintain in order to survive. And that's, you know, like, again, though, this is where race is completely linked to, to, to climate. And, yes. um, we, but we do really need to fix the one um, in order to sort out the other. And, uh, yeah, we just need to right. step away from that comfort zone, Dan. I think, you know, you've said that really well throughout. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> thanks for letting me go on a tear there that was my that was my attempt it. to oh thank you i loved it honestly <laughs> that, was, that was my attempt to articulate some stuff that has been floating around my head and it do you ever it only seems to work when i try to say it out loud at least for me that's true that like if i try to write this stuff down it just looks silly but yeah. just like in the reality of like just me putting words out of my mouth just like me trying to talk um I don't know. It's, it's easier to click into something a little bit. Oh God, I'm the same. Yeah. yeah I'm exactly yeah. the same. I really struggle to write stuff down. I think because my brain, I, I don't know, it works differently. It's always like each paragraph is like a mystery <laughs> and the only mm-hmm. sentence that makes sense is right at the end and it should be at the top. So I fall into that quite often. Um, so I write poorly and I need to do a lot of editing but when I speak, um, what's quite nice is, especially when I'm speaking to someone like you, is there's this natural flow of information and it's quite democratic and it's uh, quite spontaneous and we can understand each other's thought processes and build off it. Yeah. Um, which has been quite nice. That's it. It's the, the, the magic thing that happens in conversation that yeah. doesn't happen when you're sending a draft between a couple of people. Exactly. Yeah. And it is definitely lost in translation when it's sent in a bunch of tweets. And I do wonder how much happier or nicer the world would be if we had conversations instead of really angry racist tweets. Although yeah. I have read that um, there is now a link. Sorry, my cat has decided now is the best time to scratch the scratching post. Um, but if um, I have read that there is a link between people sending angry racist tweets and the fact that they're sadists. So level of sadism and um, the way people engage on Twitter. So actually, maybe, again, some people are just, they've just drunk the Kool-Aid already. And oh. I don't know, Dan, I don't know. We, we both know there are people that you can't reach being climate scientists. I think we've been struggling with people who um, don't or refuse to engage with facts that are sort of very clear. And how so, the hell are you going to get them to engage on things like race, which is way more emotive. And I, yeah. I don't even know where to start. That's a yeah. totally different thing. I just, again, though, I'm an ally. I'm going to call it out. I'm going to fight people every time. But well, and you're, you're, uh, oh, sorry to, sorry to interrupt. I wanted no, to clear. No, no. So, so we're, we're saying sadists as in the people who enjoy um, non-consensually uh, emotionally torturing other people. Exactly. <laughs> right. Or, or, and again, though, or just an inability to think, self-reflect and learn from an experience. And I, I hate to say it, but like, for example, 
um, my family members are part of that group where I've gone, I've done what I can to educate. And this is now a case of lost causes and, uh. and how much distance I can put between us before it becomes less toxic. Um, and that's just my family. Um, <sighs> what are you going to do with people that you don't even know? And, and again, though, my interest is not necessarily in supporting them or converting them or putting the work in. It's about protecting um, the people that they interact with because they're more, they're more valuable to me. They're more important to me. Um, it's the people at the, at the sort of, at the end of their wrath, the people who are vulnerable to their influence. Those are the people I'm going to protect. I'm not necessarily interested in educating lost causes because I know from experience from the, from the climate change side of things that it's just not always possible. Uh. Yeah, so they so they bought into the illusion of separateness really hard. Oh yeah, it's it's now their identity, you know, and and you can't change people's minds if if they've decided that this is the hill they're going to die on. But that's okay. I don't have to necessarily reach them. What I what I do need to do is be an ally to people that I can protect and put my white right. body um, in the in the way. And I'm okay with that. I'm 100 percent okay with that. Right. You're talking about protecting the people who would be harmed by uh, your continued silence or, you know, a white person or like my continued silence or your continued silence. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. If, if I, if I speak up in a room full of white people, um, it might give them pause to think about how they speak about it next time. Um, and it might certainly give them pause. Oh, I don't even know, Dan. It's just Well, like your friend did for you. Your friend did that for you. It worked for you. It can work. It's possible yeah. for it to work. Yeah. You don't know what the success rate will be, but it, it's worth trying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 and I, might not, I might not change them, but you're right. Maybe there's another person in the room who is remaining silent and maybe they, they will learn something from the experience. And as a result, like putting myself on the line might have a positive impact for the downstream. I, I don't know. I, I think now maybe we're tired and it's getting a bit mm -hmm. lost in mm -hmm. I'm sort of losing the point a little bit. But. It could be. No, and thank you. I know you said um, a while ago you were kind of already a bit drained and thank you for continuing with, with me. I uh, I hope I wasn't pushy or anything. No, no, I think I pushed. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, just, no. Oh, wait, I've just thought of more to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it felt like we got a second wind there. Like it felt like we yeah. kind of, we were, we were a little tired and then we from somewhere got a little bit more of a charge. But yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think we, we've dug into this, you know, it's it's been a lot of great uh, uh it's been a great conversation and we've really dug into it um in the ways that you and i can together mm -hmm. um and i'll just yeah so let's let's kind of wrap it up and kind of try to draw it all to together and kind of draw it to a close so um i just want to say just as a way to kind of end this that like i'm really glad to know you Lauren and I'm really glad that we met I uh, and, and that we our orbits kind of overlapped and it's uh, it's a real been a real uh, privilege to, to know you and to you know to share that kind of colleague space with you you know we don't work in exactly the same area but we're in the same kind of broad colleague you know uh, umbrella yeah. and it's uh, personally for me I've, uh, I've been really happy to like for some reason you and I have just clicked like from an early conversation, you know, who, who knows, we seem to have some kind of similar wavelength or a, a pair of wavelengths that just kind of work together. Right. And that's, that's great. I just want to celebrate that because that's, 
kind of rare. You know, it doesn't happen that often. It's, and it's nice when it does. Yeah, no, I, I'm grateful to you, Dan. I remember sitting in your office at Bass. You're showing me around before a talk and something happened. I don't remember what the actual thing was, but I said something and you responded in such a surprising and supportive way. And I thought, this guy's special. Oh. And it's, it's a real privilege to, to have you as a colleague and a friend. And I'm glad that if I was going to have this conversation with anyone, you know, in our safe white space to talk about something that we're, that we're both uncomfortable talking about, but we're trying to normalize, we're trying to be allies. If it was going to be with anyone, I'm really grateful it was with you, as you said, because we, we tend to sort of have the same wavelength and it's, mm-hmm. it's been helpful to, to try and progress this, this topic, which is hard. That makes me smile. That, that really made me happy to hear. And yeah, you, uh, I just wanted to echo, we can keep echoing back and forth positive stuff, uh, like a positivity laser. You know how a yeah. laser is like a cavity where like a certain wavelength bounces back and forth and it gets amplified over and over again. Uh-huh. So yeah. we can charge up our positivity laser and then fire it on to someone, un- some unsuspecting person who's having a bad day. That's a good idea. I think I think I might go do that. I'm going to go share some love with, with two key people who I know could use a bit of a boost. So but you're special too. I, I really uh, like having you in my in my orbit, in my life. So thank you, Lauren. And yes, absolutely. If I was going to do this with anybody, you're the person. You're the person to have this conversation with. I'm really glad that we did this. Oh, I'm glad. And I hope it turns out okay. And uh, for like the fifth time, if we get dragged, let's, let's commit to learn from it and be better yes. going forward. So that's, that's the best I think we can do to, to wrap it up. That's right. I know we've said it a lot, but I think you're right. It's important to say we're we're both being vulnerable. We're putting ourselves out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, we're not perfect. We're willing to learn. So that's a good way to end, I think. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Dan. This has been great. I'll speak with you soon. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Too. Bye. Okay. If you made it all the way to the end here, thanks very much for giving us the space between your ears to have this conversation or maybe the space in your living room, wherever you're playing this. I'd like to spend the outro here mentioning this. Uh, it's a Google Doc, actually. It's a nice collection of, uh, when I say nice, I mean like it's helpful. I've been using it. This uh, anti-racism resource document. And I can actually tell you the link because it's really simple. It might seem weird to give a hyperlink over a podcast, but it's uh, bit.ly. So, you know, the bit.ly thing, bit.ly slash anti-racism resources, all one word. And this contains a developing list of books, podcasts, articles. Uh, There are resources for parents to raise anti-racist children, uh, articles to read, videos to watch, podcasts to subscribe to. This is where I learned about this 1619 podcast, which I uh, really can't recommend enough. It's uh, excellent and uh, well worth listening to. It was really illuminating for me, even as somebody who grew up in the U.S. South. There was a lot of the historical context that um, was really not fresh in my mind and really not in front of my face. So I really appreciated um, that education. And there's films and TV series to watch so much. And uh, take care of yourselves, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.